Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. I hope everyone listening is keeping well and staying healthy. Uh, things in Israel are relatively quiet these days, uh, relative being the operative term. It's all relative for Israel. Uh, but there are no elections on the horizon. The security situation in Gaza and the West Bank and Lebanon has remained, yes, relatively stable in recent weeks. And the new government is preoccupied with the passage of a budget very soon, uh, by definition, a very bureaucratic process. So what we wanted to do today is zoom out a little bit and take stock of two massive geopolitical issues, Iran and China, uh, and how they impact Israel. Uh, Iran obviously is a regional issue, a major regional issue, with major international ramifications due primarily to its nuclear program. And China is a massive international issue with major regional ramifications here inside the Middle East. So where do efforts to put Iran's nuclear program back in a box stand at the moment? Are we closer to a new nuclear deal or a war? And what role can and does China play on this issue and in the Middle East more broadly? I personally can't think of a better person to help us make sense of these two countries and these two massive topics than Kevin Lim, a Tel Aviv-based analyst and academic, an adjunct research fellow at the National University of Singapore, and the author of a forthcoming book on Iranian grand strategy. Kevin also recently published a major report for the Institute for National Security Studies here in Tel Aviv on Iran-China relations, very, very topical. Uh, and he's also the only person I know who speaks fluent Hebrew, Arabic, Farsi, and Mandarin. It's a source of never-ending envy. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Good morning, Neri. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on, Kevin. So let's zoom out, like I said, and set the table for people on this big issue of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, we should remind everybody that U.S. President Barack Obama signed a nuclear deal with Iran in 2015, right? Uh, it was called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Uh, and that deal held for a number of years until 2018, when former U.S. President Donald Trump, at the urging of former Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, uh, withdrew from the JCPOA and instituted what many refer to as a strategy of maximum pressure against Iran, uh, primarily sanctions, uh, but not only against Iran, looking to essentially have Iran capitulate and come back and negotiate a better deal. Uh, that didn't quite turn out as Trump and others had hoped for, and we can get into it in a little bit. But then fast forward to earlier this year, President Joe Biden takes power in Washington, and his stated intention really is to have the U.S. return to the nuclear deal, uh, to have the U.S. and Iran actually negotiate and for the deal to be reinstituted, rather. Um, on the flip side, though, after three years of maximum pressure, uh, we've seen the Iranian nuclear program uh, advance greatly. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said the nuclear program is at its most advanced stage ever. Uh, the Iranians are enriching uranium at higher levels and stockpiling more uranium. Uh, they're running more advanced centrifuges to enrich that uranium. Uh, they're doing all kinds of other work uh, 
towards ostensibly and perhaps uh, a nuclear weapon. Uh, it's a major concern. It's a major concern here in Israel, in Washington, in Europe. So, Kevin, uh, after that long lead up and setting the table for our listeners, where do the talks stand now, right? So, if Biden came into office and wanted to negotiate a return to the deal, it doesn't look like that's going all that well. Um, at this point, is this talks about Iran perhaps returning to the talks? Is that where we're at? Right. So, uh, so this week, uh, the Iranians are convening of their European uh, counterparts in Brussels to try and essentially talk about uh, going back to the talks rather than uh, going back to or rather than resuming the seventh round of talks where they were left off in June after Iran's presidential elections. And, you know, if you had asked me back in February this year, uh, just after President Biden entered the White House, what would, he, what would be the prospects of a deal being reached between both countries? I would have said back then, maybe I would have, you know, placed it at about 80 odds to perhaps 90% likelihood. Mm -hmm. I think with the passing months, uh, for me at least, that likelihood has decreased. And if you were to ask me now, I would, if I had to put a figure to it, an artificial figure, I'll place it at somewhere uh, 60, under 60%. But the point is that it still is likelier than not. Okay. Uh, and I, I still think that there is some prospect for at least uh, a reinstatement, if not a full reinstatement of JCPOA, then at least uh, uh, a partial kind of deal, like a bit like the JPOA, uh, before the JCPOA was actually signed. So there was this other interim deal, right. the JPOA, uh, back uh, uh, months before the, the final deal was signed in 2015. Now, the current set of um, issues. There are several classes of issues that are being discussed, and these have been increasing uh, over well as as talks drag on. We know that the Biden administration uh, did not uh, well, rather the Biden administration took a couple of months to to um, uh, to really kickstart these negotiations, and and uh, and that delay has in some sense cost it. Although it has other uh, domestic political considerations as well, it's got you know it didn't probably didn't want to waste all that political capital early on. It's mm -hmm. got other uh, bigger fish to fry, like the, the infrastructure uh, bill. Um, but the the set, the, the um, uh, issues that both sides are facing now, so here are some of them, and in no particular order of uh, importance, right? So one of them, for instance, is sequencing. Iran uh, expects the US to lift all sanctions, and from Iran's point of view, to lift all sanctions first, rather, from Iran's point of view, and and uh, you know, it's it's it was the Trump administration that left that abandoned the JCPOA first, whereas Iran had actually waited a full year before moving towards any sort of a retaliatory uh, measure. So, for from Iran's point of view, it's only after the U.S. lifts these sanctions that Iran will then verify that they've been lifted before, at that point, then rolling back its own nuclear scale back measures. Uh, another point of contention is also. Uh, uh, the, the fact that Iran wants all Trump-era sanctions uh, slash designations lifted, not just those that are nuclear-related. We know that the Biden administration uh, is disposed to lifting roughly two-thirds, well, the, the nuclear-related ones, uh, so roughly two-thirds of the 1,600 or so uh, designations slash sanctions that have been placed uh, during the, uh, the Trump era. But, there are, uh, but roughly one-third of that are not directly related to the nuclear program. In and of itself, and uh, and so there there, there is a, there are there is a dispute over this as well. Uh, Iran also seeks more sanctions relief compared to what it had gotten in the original deal back in 2015, which 
you know, which would then, in essence, require a different set of negotiations towards a broader deal. Uh, then there are also questions, for instance, on whether the the JCPOA, as it currently stands, its its uh, its current provisions are actually uh, sufficient and adequate to constrain Iran's uh, nuclear program, given that Iran has, like you said, um, advancing significantly in its uh, on the nuclear front, uh, and specifically whether the JCPOA is adequate will be adequate to in respect of the advances that have been made in centrifuge development, in advanced mm-hmm. centrifuges, as well as in Iran's uh, accumulation of nuclear knowledge, right? So, uh, and the point here really is to, uh, in the original deal at least, to to um, sort of push back the breakout time, the so-called breakout time to one year. Uh, the breakout time for those, uh, for the benefit of those who are not familiar with the term, is the, the time required for Iran to amass um, uh, sufficient uh, uranium and rich uranium for the production of one nuclear device. Mm-hmm. So um, there are also a number of other issues uh, that have uh, that have increased over time. We have uh, questions over uh, we have demands rather by Iran uh, concerning a guarantee that the US will not again pull out of the nuclear agreement, which is a demand that I can understand from the Iranian point of view, but from from the American side of things, it's very difficult, very very difficult. Um, there are also, uh, in addition, several questions over or questions over several undeclared sites of concern where traces of enriched uranium were found by uh, IAEA inspectors. That's the International Atomic Energy Agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, questions that Iran has not yet satisfactorily addressed. Uh, and so, I think all in the Iranians now. Well, their official explanation is that they've had to, they've had, uh, they needed time to sort of put this new. Uh, negotiating strategy together and their team together, the new negotiations team. Uh, since June, it's it's been longer than most people have expected, I think, longer than I have expected, certainly longer than I have expected. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's also working to the advantage uh, from the point of view of leverage. If they've been you know, pushing up, they've been ramping up leverage, certainly on the nuclear front, uh, since uh, Trump ditched the, 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 the JCPOA, uh, and of course, over we've had other incidents, other events over over the past many months as well. The assassinations of Fakhrizadeh, Iran's uh, top nuclear scientist, as well as the earlier assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the right. Quds Force. All these have come together to sort of uh, have given Iran rather an avenue or or an opportunity to ramp up uh, leverage. And and the last thing is also that Iran has also been able to at the same time take advantage of this uh, window of opportunity. Uh, to simply, you know, advance in its uh, in its nuclear program, an opportunity that it would not have otherwise gotten had it had things remained quiet and had Trump not ditched the JCPOA. Right. They uh, they ditched the nuclear arms deal, uh, and then Iran actually proliferated to a greater extent than arguably they ever have before. Um, you said something that I want to delve into a bit more deeply: uh, the Iranian mindset. Right. So if you're looking at Iranian decision makers sitting in Tehran, um, is it really just a case of a new hardline government uh, taking power uh, and, like you said, figuring out their their own internal mechanisms and bureaucracy and, and ostensibly for domestic political reasons, showing that they're uh, more hardline than their predecessors? Uh, or has there really been, to your mind, a shift in Iranian thinking where, you know, we don't really need to cut a deal? Uh, the U.S. at Israel's urging uh, through 
almost all the sanctions sink at us. We're still here. Uh, we have a resistance economy and, and a maximum resistance strategy, so to speak. And we're just going to wait out the U.S. and the West. Uh, what do you think? So what you've just laid out is a combination of dispositional and situational factors. Dispositional in terms of the revisionist outlook or the hardline outlook, the incoming of, of the current, this new uh, government under Ibrahim Raisi. And then you've got the situational aspects of it, which have got to do with the strategic setting and the way Iran views the, the balance of power, right? So uh, I think, let me start off at the bottom line. I think that the Raisi government still earnestly would prefer that the JCPOA uh, be reinstated at its uh, at Iran's terms, of course, but uh, it is it, w- it is still currently willing to go back to the table. Uh, it is tabling tougher demands for sure, but it's not uh, it hasn't uh, and it's not thinking of completely jettisoning the talks yet. Now, in terms of the mindset, the cast of mind of current administration. So for sure, um, it's an administration that's that's been uh, several uh, that's been staffed that's being staffed with uh, officials that were many of many of whom were opposed to the JCPOA right from the offset, um, and uh, officials who see little benefit in engaging or re-engaging with the West in the way that the previous Rouhani government had done. Uh, Raisi himself is under sanctions in, uh, for, for human rights uh, uh, violations, and uh, as a whole, the, the Raisi government is also panning towards, well, t- looking eastward once again. It's, it's not a new you know, uh, uh, strategic concept in in the Iranian space, but it certainly is getting. It's it certainly is intensifying once again. And by that, we're talking about Russia and China. And I'll touch on that uh, shortly. So, all in, um, yes, there is this greater hardline uh, resistance towards um, towards uh, uh, the West, and specifically the, the, the US, uh, and and resistance against you know being seen as um, being cowed by by the terms of this JCPO. JCPOA and having to constrain its own nuclear program. Now, at the situational on the situational side of the equation, um, there are also a number of things that uh, I suppose work in favor of Iran, at least from Iran's point of view. So, one of them, for instance, is the fact that Iran has managed to Iran's economy has managed to endure everything that the Trump administration threw at it, and it's still doing quite a good job of surviving. It's still muddling muddling through. It doesn't have to be prosperous, but it it survives. Uh, and that's not really a bad thing after all for a country that's been facing uh, sanctions in different forms for the past four decades or so. Uh, the second thing is that um, the uh, you mentioned maximum stre- maximum resistance, right? So certainly under this current government, but already going back from the previous government uh, to what in last Persian calendar year and roughly when the coronavirus uh, began, what Iran has been doing over you know across these two administrations is to focus on really, um, I suppose, ramping up its its industrial production, its exports, its non-oil sector, uh, as different ways of trying to circumvent its oil, uh, uh, you know, its oil exports and sanctions on its oil exports specifically. It's uh, and under the Raisi government, it's also now focused on a strategy of not just waiting, not just tying its hopes to. Uh, to a renewal or reinstatement of JCPOA, but actually actively working to neutralize the effect of sanctions. And it's doing that in in the same way that I've just outlined earlier by also turning east, uh, turning to trade, increased trade with all its uh, direct, its 15 uh, neighbors. Um, and, and the last thing is also, the other point is also China and Russia. So uh, Iran also basically, you know, looks, continues to look at the US as a country that is, 
that, uh, as a power that is in decline. The, the way the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, I think, sort of uh, brought that point home for the Iranians in particular. Uh, and that's just one of several corroborative examples. And then you have, on the other hand, Iran's own uh, relations with China and Russia. These are, of course, two major powers and, and challenges of the, of the U.S. And Iran, Iran's relations with these two major powers are seemingly in the ascendant. You will recall that just some weeks back uh, at its uh, summit, the, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Council and all its eight permanent members, which it's, it's an organization that's led by the, Russia, by, the, by the Russians and the Chinese, and it's often perceived, whether true or not, it's a different thing, but it's often perceived as an anti-West, anti-NATO, and anti-US geopolitical bloc. So in that summit, um, the members all uh, finally approved the accession of Iran uh, as a full member, uh, a request that has been in the waiting now for 13 long years. So uh, from Iran's point of view, uh, from Iran's point of view, and not necessarily all the other members of the SCO see it this way, but certainly from Iran's point of view, this is a form of insurance. It's a bulwark uh, against the West for and and you know for uh, including uh, for a scenario in which. Uh, the Americans decide to, or the Israelis decide to conduct a military uh, uh, military operations against Iran. So, if I take all these things together, mm-hmm. uh, what it means, what it tells me, is that the Raisi government now seems to be more reconciled with a potential no deal scenario, right? So, ideally, yes, we would prefer we the Iranians would prefer the jump back in the JCPOA under terms that are acceptable to us. But if that doesn't work out, ultimately. We are now more reconciled with potential no deal scenario for all the reasons that I've, for all the situational reasons that I've laid out. Uh, and so we also see Iran increasingly pressing uh, for, you know, for, for demands and pressing for, for concessions that weren't made under the Rouhani uh, administration. Right. Uh, it's very interesting. So uh, a mixture of both domestic politics and just Iran's strategic environment that they'll check out the option of negotiations with the U.S. and the West and a return to the deal, but also hedging their bets and in the best Iranian fashion, uh, not moving not moving too quickly, right? Letting the negotiations come, come to them, uh, try at least outwardly to project the idea that time is on their side as opposed to the U.S. and the West. Um, let's bring in Israel. This has obviously been a growing issue in the political and strategic conversation here, as I'm sure you know, and probably our listeners know. Uh, As I mentioned at the top, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has actually come out and said that under the three years of Trump slash Netanyahu maximum pressure, the Iranians accelerated their nuclear program. Uh, So it begs the question, uh, what, if anything, the withdrawal from the deal actually, actually did? Uh, whether it had the the reverse effect than what Trump and Netanyahu had actually hoped, uh, but really the debate, to my mind, here in Israel has has shifted slightly. Right, that what was anathema while Netanyahu was uh, prime minister, coming out, let's say, in favor, at least tacitly in favor of the JCPOA, has now become a bit more a bit more normalized a bit more above the surface. And we've seen uh, former uh, senior Israeli security officials uh, come out and make this argument publicly. Uh, We've even seen current Israeli officials, very senior ones, say that they would actually accept uh, some kind of diplomatic arrangement uh, between the West and Iran over its nuclear program. That's, That's a shift, right, from what 
was the case under Netanyahu, who uh, who blasted the Iran nuclear deal as uh, as a very 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 bad deal uh, and actively campaigned against the nuclear deal, uh, most most infamously uh, in Congress during the Obama era. So, from your perspective, Kevin, um, has Israeli thinking shifted with regard to the JCPOA? Mm-hmm. So, like what you said, what was anathema previously uh, to the Israeli political class has certainly surfaced now, and I think this also gels, like what you've also alluded to, this also gels largely with the well, the broad views of Israel's security establishment that, despite all its failings and defects, the JCPOA of 2015 ultimately would have been the best tool to. To, re- to relatively the best tool to constrain Iran's uh, nuclear program in the foreseeable future. Now, a, a couple of things to this, of course. I think one of them uh, is that Israel doesn't uh, uh, doesn't operate in, in a vacuum. It uh, operates within, an, in, you know, it has to operate also with its allies, uh, chief of them being the United States. And now that the Biden administration is, power, uh, is in power, uh, the Bennett government has also uh, made efforts to to basically um, mend fences with it, and it's uh, no longer, it's no longer, it no longer wants to be seen as being as you know openly opposing it in the way that the previous government of Netanyahu uh, was seen to be doing, uh, with Congress only being one example. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, if we just look at the Israeli calculation alone, I think they're all in. Uh, so Israel faces three broad threat elements when it comes to Iran, and these uh, three elements have been spoken about in various configurations, in various media. The biggest one, of course, is the nuclear issue itself. But you have two other elements. Uh, You've got Iran's ballistic missiles, since these would also be the delivery uh, uh, systems for any eventual uh, or putative, rather, uh, nuclear device. And also just for their, their, uh, you know, damage uh, uh, potential, even if these were just to deploy conventional weapons. And then the third element is Iran's support for regional militias, many of which are also uh, located or deployed along Israel's uh, borders, especially in the north. And uh, and so Israel looks at these three elements together. And I think that, you know, ultimately, if we had to prioritize our threats in Israel, uh, the nuclear one remains front and center because ultimately Israel has got responses to the other two elements. And that's to, uh, that's for the missiles uh, for which Israel has its, you know, multi-layered um, missile uh, defense system. We know that works. We don't know if the, 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 the non-Iron Dome aspects of it really should work, but uh, I, th- I guess right. the general feeling is that they do work. We just, uh, Israel, Israelis just hope that they don't have to see the day in which those systems are tested. Uh, but, and then Israel also has, you know, in, I suppose, in, in the form of its, uh, its broader regional uh, presence as well, whether it's through the Mossad or any other intelligence slash security uh, um, agency, uh, response to militias, uh, militias that are either operating on behalf of Iran or that, or that are allied with Iran. So allied with Iran are those including uh, Hamas uh, and the Houthis, for instance, Hamas in, in, the, in the Gaza Strip and Houthis in Yemen, as opposed to other militias that are uh, proxies, the direct proxies of Iran, like Hezbollah in Lebanon and maybe the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Jihad. once again in the Gaza Strip. So it, I think Israel looks at these and if it had to really rank its threats, the nuclear one remains front and center. And not just because of any sort of uh, potential scenario in which Iran is eventually attains a nuclear device or nuclear devices uh, and attempts to nuke Israel with that. I mean, that is, I think most of Israel's leadership are cognizant of, of that being a very low probability outcome. But once again, if 
uh, you know, if you're if you're in Israel's in that position um, of leading the country, this is a threat that you certainly have to take at face value. But uh, the a nuclear a nuclear Iran also poses other issues. Uh, once Iran goes nuclear, you know, this is I think uh, the general assessment is that this will embolden Iran and it will. Uh, affect the way it deals with Iran, uh, with uh, Israel, and not just not just Israel, but other countries as well at the more conventional levels of engagement and non-nuclear, of course. But once you've got this nuclear umbrella umbrella hanging overhead, uh, the general assessment is that this will 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 uh, embolden Iranians, and that also is that also has got strategic repercussions. Right. So, obviously, the Iranian nuclear threat, potential threat in future, is existential. Whereas the other uh, missile threats and the proxy threat, more conventional, Israel uh, has in the past and in the future knows how to deal with those types of threats. Uh, nuclear is, is a different kettle of fish. Uh, it's interesting, too, we should mention that Israeli officials and strategists uh, now delink the nuclear issue from the other issues that you mentioned, right? Whereas in the past, you had certain... Uh, officials both here in Israel and in Washington saying, well, the the JCPOA didn't address all of our concerns vis-a-vis Iran, uh, and that was what made it a very bad deal. Uh, it's interesting, at least to my mind, that now uh, Israel very much wants to delink mm-hmm. the the nuclear issue from, say, the regional and missile threat, uh, which is also, I think, a shift in Israeli thinking. Um, the U.S., right, the Biden administration, uh, we said at the top, it came into office and very much wanted to negotiate a return to the JCPOA with Iran. Uh, like you said, the administration would give sanctions relief. Iran would reverse its nuclear advances and return to, to full compliance with the agreement. Uh, that has not happened as of yet. Uh, it's tarrying. Um, so that was the Biden administration plan A. Uh, and now we hear from Israel and now from Washington uh, talk of a plan B, right? Uh, so the plan B, very much uh, ostensibly increase sanctions on Iran, uh, not just by the U.S., but by European states, uh, perhaps the U.N., uh, ideally for their mind, China, which we'll touch on in a second. Um, and then obviously the plan C, which uh, Israel talks about, is uh, is the military option to to take out Iran's nuclear facilities. My question to you, Kevin, right, if we're talking about this plan B and, okay, Iran doesn't want to to generally come back to the negotiating table, so we're going to increase the pressure on them, primarily economic, um, isn't this more of the same? Isn't this just a repeat of three years of Trump-era maximum pressure? Um, And if it does look the same, then why should it work this time if it hadn't worked uh, over the past three years? Uh, I think it would be more of the same. And what's different for the Iranians this time around, um, as opposed to, for instance, the sanctions period between 2006 and 2015, when the JCPOA, uh, or 2016, when the JCPOA came into effect, is that this time uh, it is, uh, in in some way, Iran Iran has got the moral upper hand or perceives that it does have the moral upper hand just because Trump was the one that, uh, the Trump administration had been the one uh, to leave the JCPOA, even though, according to the IAEA, uh, Iran had continued to abide by the provisions of the of the of the JCPOA, right? So, and and this also has knock-on effects on the way that other major powers, especially Russia and China, 
uh, view um, this whole situation. China in particular, and I guess we'll be talking about this in a short while as well, uh, has been consistently uh, has been consistent in its line uh, that the uh, that that the U.S.'s secondary sanctions, secondary sanctions meaning sanctions that don't just apply uh, like primary sanctions on U.S. citizens or entities, but also on third countries dealing with countries that are sanctioned. So they reject uh, secondary sanctions, American secondary sanctions. They call these unjust, and they uh, their position, the official position, is that trade between China and Iran is legitimate, and so should not be hampered. Uh, including by U.S. secondary sanctions. And so, uh, you know, the, the Chinese and to a degree the Russians as well, I think, have um, at times uh, cheated the, the uh, upgraded the, the Americans for, for, first of all, leaving the JCPOA and have uh, been trying to get them to go back in first uh, to do their part as well. Um, so what's different, I think, from at least from Iran's point of view, and this also sort of feeds into what I was saying earlier, perceptions on Iran's side that it now has the upper hand just more broadly on the situational side of things, the strategic setting, uh, because it now isn't, it is delaying, it is procrastinating in returning to the negotiations table. Uh, but it has, um, you know, there are legitimate grievances here, right? Because it continued to be, continued to be, uh, continued to abide by the terms of JCPOA. Uh, and even for a full year after the, the, the Americans withdrew from it. So uh, sanctions will probably be more of the same. And, you know, if we're talking about American sanctions, it's hard to think of a sector in Iran that hasn't already been uh, uh, sanctioned. I mean, look, I'm working right now on a report on Iran's mining sector constraints and opportunities, and uh, that's an that's a, that's one of the really uh, that's a, that's an interesting topic because it's one of the economic sectors that Iran has been trying to ramp up non-oil sectors, and uh, we know that you know uh, a few years back the Trump administration began by sanctioning imposing sanctions specifically on the iron, steel, copper, and aluminium sectors, and then later extended that to pretty much all of the mining sector. So the Ameri- you know the Biden administration can uh, can extend more of these sanctions, whether it's on uh, on different parts of Iran's uh, uh, economy. If um, if it does get to international sanctions, it would have more of a bite, uh, obviously. But all in, I think this plan B that you're talking about, um, I don't think it's really going to push the Iranians to the brink unless the Chinese in particular also uh, find themselves on the same side as as the as the Americans, which is not really the case. So we're talking about plan B, uh, increase sanctions on Iran to get it to come back to the negotiating table and to negotiate uh, in earnest. But a lot is tied on China's role in this plan B. Uh, I've heard it from Israeli officials directly. Uh, It's alluded to the fact that, well, to make these new and increased sanctions actually effective, we need China's uh, buy-in in order to pressure Iran. So my question to you is what is China's actual equity, so to speak, uh, in Iranian trade and economics? And really, how does China view its relationship with Iran more broadly? Um, those are two very big questions, but it, it's such an underexposed and under-talked about topic that it's important to kind of draw this out because it's very easy and facile to just say, well, uh, we need China to pressure Iran to come back to the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, uh, let me just at the offset, say that this is a relationship that's asymmetric uh, from, you know, f- for China and for, for Iran, meaning that for Iran, China really is critical. China right now is almost the be-all and end-all 
it is it has been its economic uh, economic lifeline over the past uh, couple of years under maximum pressure uh, and Iran's current government like I said is you know is once again turning east and is very favorably inclined towards uh, strategic relations with uh, the eastern the, the political east right the eastern major powers chi uh, China in particular uh, from the Chinese point of view I think it's the views are a bit more nuanced um, the Chinese uh, government sees certainly sees utility in Iran uh, in the sense that Iran, first and foremost, is uh, a major reserve holder of energy, uh, not, not a major exporter right now, uh, not even a really big producer because of sanctions, but it is certainly a major reserve holder, second and fourth in terms of gas and oil. Uh, Iran is located pretty much in a very, very central part of the world, uh, literally, uh, and this also feeds into China's Belt and Road if, if uh, this is something that uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping wants to really push to the hilt in terms of connectivity, overland routes, ports, uh, and this sort of thing. And the third thing is also, importantly, I think, for China, that Iran, uh, within the Gulf at least, which is where, uh, you know, China, uh, or the Middle East more broadly, China imports roughly half of its energy uh, requirements from that region. Uh, and within the Gulf specifically, Iran is pretty much only, uh, pretty much the only country that is likely not to fold under U.S. pressure in the event of a, uh, of, of a U.S.-China confrontation, mm -hmm. right? Interesting. So, and, and it's just all in. Iran's, the fact that Iran's so feisty towards the U.S. is of some utility uh, to major powers that are themselves facing sanctions from the U.S. and that are themselves uh, pushing back against American pressure. So uh, I think broadly that's how the Chinese see the, the Iranians. Now, in terms of equity and what they've actually invested in Iran, whether it's material investments or anything else, diplomatic relations and so on, the picture is more nuanced one. And this is, uh, this is what I try to also portray in my INSS, uh, a study that was put out in May of this year. Uh, for China, what's, what remains important, uh, this may change the future, but what remains important for now is a balance of relations. Uh, so China knows that it's dealing with, China wants to be friends with all within the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, and China wants, uh, China needs to balance its uh, uh, its relations with Iran on the one side, with uh, the region's other actors, many of which are either direct competitors, rivals, or in Israel's case, an outright enemy. Uh, and, it, and we see that in the figures as well, in terms of what China has invested, um, actually invested in countries, particularly like, uh, this, uh, like, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but also more generally in trade ties. Uh, trade ties involve the private sector in China as well, not just the state sector, uh, but they do, they do give a very good indicator. Uh, and uh, that's not to say that trade ties, economic ties and investment ties between China and Iran are not important. On the contrary, they, they really are, imp they are important, but we need to put them into perspective. Uh, and so, for instance, trade with Iran at its peak reached 52 billion. And this was uh, some years back in 20, I think about seven or eight years back. Uh, it's been, it's fluctuated since then. And over the past uh, two, three years, it's also gone down in part also because of the COVID pandemic that's affected right. all the economies uh, more generally. Um, uh, but but 52, on, 52 yeah. billion isn't that much, right? Relatively speaking. 
Relatively speaking, it's not that much. Both countries have stated that, well, Iran in particular has stated that it hopes to try and reach 600 billion over the next uh, decade. And this was, the statement was made in 2016, right? Uh, so the potential is there, but just because of the, of the constraints that Iran faces, uh, beginning with sanctions, but not just sanctions, there are not a host of other issues as well, but sanctions have played uh, quite a significant role in denting that potential uh, in suppressing that potential for, for economic development potential for Iran. So 52 billion, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a drop in the ocean of Chinese trade. Uh, but for Iran, uh, its reliance on China as a trade partner, for instance, has, uh, has at points reached like one third. And currently it stands at one third, meaning China makes up a third of all of Iran's uh, global trade. And, and that's, that's big. That's even larger than Armenia's reliance on Russia. Uh, so... Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, since the Trump administration reimposes sanctions, we have also seen China, on the one hand, diluting its trade and in particular its um, crude oil imports from Iran. But on the other hand, instead of winding them completely, right, even after the US's waivers on, on the, the remaining set of eight countries expired, China continued, uh, China uh reportedly continued to, to its uptake of uh, Iranian crude uh, through third countries, third countries like the UAE, Oman, uh, Iraq, uh, Malaysia, and so on. And, um, and so in that sense, I think it's been trying to tread a very uh, delicate line between not being seen as openly defying the US, uh, or rather, you know, just to put things into perspective, at that point, you also had China-US uh, trade talks during the Trump administration. So I think this was right. also perhaps... Uh, in a way, a kind of concession uh, to the U.S. Uh, in exchange for other concessions on the U.S.'s side, of course. Uh, but all in, China remains pretty much, if these reports are true, uh, China then remains pretty much Iran's largest oil uh, uh, client. It's the, the volumes certainly pale in comparison to, to what they had been previously. Uh, but China hasn't completely exited from, you know, from from Iran, and that's that's quite the point. So it's still it's still an important element. We saw that in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We also saw that uh, in uh, this past March when both countries finally signed the 25-year agreement, uh, a uh, strategic cooperation agreement, an agreement that had first been broached, um, uh, to my knowledge, at least in 2016. Uh, of course, that agreement per se doesn't really say anything, doesn't say much beyond uh, what we think we know because none of its details have actually been disclosed other than a leaked draft of uh, of the agreement uh, but that hasn't really translated into concrete contracts on the ground you know contracts in very specific sectors the only thing to my knowledge that has actually taken place is Iran's accession to the Shanghai cooperation organization in the agreement this is one specific clause that was mentioned uh, according to which China would back Iran's uh, membership full membership request and that we know has uh, happen. Iran isn't yet a full member. Uh, what has happened is the, is that the procedures have uh, are now in motion, have now begun right. for Iran to eventually join. But you know that's, that's a question. Of it's interesting. You're laying out a relationship that's more. It sounds more political and strategic than actual uh, definitive economic ties, economic and military ties. Uh, well, it, it, you know, just to, just to quickly jump in on that, it's. For Iran, for a country facing maximum pressure, uh, even if those trade uh, ties had been diluted and oil exports, it, it still was and still is a lifeline. So important. 
So we have to view this in perspective, right? right? Relative relative to Iran and its needs. Uh, Kevin, let me ask you, this might be our final question, uh, and it comes as part of our Ask the Forum segment where uh, listeners of our podcast send in questions that interest them. Uh, this question comes from Jonathan Camel, uh, and he asks, uh, is Israel worried about China's increased role in the region and how that may shift the balance of power uh, in the Middle East? So to unpack that a bit slightly, I think a better way to, to frame it is, you know, what is China's actual role in the Middle East? And number two, uh, is this more in terms of Israel? Is this more about the U.S.? pivoting away from the Middle East and, and Israel being concerned about that? Or is it actually China itself entering the Middle East? What do you think? Well, the Chinese presence uh, in the Middle East has been overwhelmingly economic uh, and diplomatic more than military, as opposed to China's engagement in some other parts of the world. Uh, and and which is also why, you know, uh, we see this emphasis on balanced relations, on trying to uh, pander to to. Iran as well as to Iran's rivals. Um, but China has also been able to enter this space uh, with such uh, intensity on the back of American security guarantees and the fact that the US is also uh, based in the region, particularly in the Persian Gulf, uh, and, uh, uh, and America also, you know, and the fact that America secures uh, a large part of the, has been securing a large part of the Regions, uh, uh, shipping uh, uh, lines, for instance, uh, and and just just uh, right. uh, more generally. Um, now that the if the if the Biden administration or the U.S. more broadly were to be were to gradually continue moving out, we know that it's uh, reduced its troop presence. Well, first of all, Afghanistan, of course, but it's also reduced them in, in Iraq. Uh, it uh, it continues to maintain about nine hundred or so uh, service people in Syria, but that might eventually go at some point. Uh, we, we know that the Americans. Say, uh, yeah. You speak to any U.S. official these days in Washington, and they say our priority is China, and we're pivoting mm -hmm. to the Far East and the Middle East. Uh, as important as it might be to all of us here, uh, it's not as important as it has been, say, over the past twenty or thirty years. So it's a it's a real stated grand strategic objective of the Biden administration and, and Washington now. Correct. So it's not just a strategic focus, but it's the fact that. It's the fact that the Biden administration has also, you know, shifted away actual military assets like Patriot batteries from from Saudi Arabia, and troops also from a number of countries uh, from the region. So I think, regardless of what uh, the Biden administration will try and portray, uh, that you know, America remains front and center here. It's still a priority. Ultimately, it's a question of perceptions on the part of uh, the region's players, mm. uh, and and including Israel. Including Israel, especially Israel. Well, Israel and the, and the Saudis, I think. Uh, and if the if the U.S. were to pivot at some point away and towards the role of an offshore balancer, um, I mean, there is certainly space for China to, you know, to sort of fill uh, more substantively. Uh, I, I guess the question moving forward is also whether China. One of the, one of the key questions moving forward is also whether China will step in as a military actor and not just in its current capacity as, uh, as a trade partner and a leading trade partner of many of the region's countries, right? right. Uh, I, I don't really see that in the cards at present. We know that there have been uh, an increase, for instance, in, in port calls between China and a number of uh, the region's countries, Iran, but not just Iran, but a number of Iran's neighbors as well, as, uh, Saudi Arabia, Oman. Uh, and, um, 
and, uh, and, and China has also carried out anti-piracy operations or exercises. It's carried out uh, joint drills, with, including with Iran. Uh, in one case, it was a trilateral drill uh, involving Russia. Um, but China hasn't uh, yet entered the region in, in a more robust military capacity. Uh, we know it's got a base in Djibouti, uh, but still all in, in a more robust military capacity. Uh, we do see elements of that, though, in other spaces, in other parts of the world. For instance, China has, uh, in Central Asia, and now that the Taliban are back uh, in power in Afghanistan, uh, and that the threat of terrorism is once again on the rise in that region, we know that China maintains a base, well, according to foreign reports, of course, uh, in uh, a part of Tajikistan that borders on, on the Afghan and the Chinese uh, borders uh, near the near Afghanistan's Wakhan Corridor. It's a base that's been growing over the past five or six years within Tajik uh, territory. Um, and that, the, you know, the Russians have tacitly accepted for now. We know that uh, the Chinese have uh, are increasing in bits and pieces, uh, uh, a kind of military or quasi-military or paramilitary uh, uh, and that also involves not just the military itself, the, the PLA, but also elements of the armed police forces, for instance, which are also involved in counterterrorism. And so mm -hmm. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that in the near future, but I also wouldn't be surprised if at some point, especially if the US were to be more, uh, were to be more absent, perceived as being more absent from, from this region, that the Chinese see themselves uh, having to secure their own assets and their own interests by also moving in uh, security elements, whether it's state uh, security agencies or private uh, military companies, right? Uh, it could shift, is what you're is what you're saying, but we're not we're not quite there yet. Um, by the way, ask the forum uh, if you do have a question for us, please submit it to policypod at ipforum.org, and we'll go through it and choose uh, hopefully the good ones in future podcast episodes. Uh, and our second newish segment is called Curation Corner. Uh, as we've said in the past, there is a lot of content out there. Uh, so we're going to try to highlight the pieces of content, whether articles or books or TV shows and the like, uh, that you, our listeners, should check out. Uh, my recommendation for this week, uh, it's not an article, it's not a book, it's not a TV show, it's actually a speech. Uh, it's a speech that was given by Israeli Foreign Minister and Alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid uh, this past Monday in the Knesset. And the occasion was the Hebrew calendar anniversary of the Yitzhak Rabin assassination uh, 26 years ago in 1995. Uh, and to my mind, it was a really interesting speech by, by Lapid. Uh, he got up there and basically said uh, and, and alleged and claimed that Igal Amir, Rabin's assassin, uh, his ideological heirs, his ide ideological offspring, are today serving in the Israeli Knesset. Uh, and Lapid basically said that if it were not for, as he said, as he called it, the miracle of this new Israeli government that he that he put together, uh, these ideological offspring of Igal Amir would actually be in government and be ministers in in that kind of government. Uh, and then he basically said that uh, there's a clear line stretching from the events of 1995 and Rabin's assassination and what has happened in Israel over the past uh, year or two, um, that it's not a struggle between right and left in Israel, but between those who actually believe in democracy and those trying to destroy Israeli democracy. Uh, really strong stuff, uh, but it was a very 
very interesting speech to my mind. Uh, so we're going to put a link to that as well uh, on our podcast platform and online. Kevin, do you have a recommendation for our listeners on Curation Corner? Um, well, I guess just if we're talking about Iran, China, and everything that we've been talking about, I suppose just the, the couple of things that you pointed to right at the start, if there is interest in it. Uh, for instance, in, in my forthcoming book, which was actually an outgrowth of my uh, doctoral work uh, mm-hmm. at Tel Aviv University, I look at the broader picture of Iran's uh, strategic adjustments over the past four decades uh, and the factors behind uh, why Iran made changes or, or at certain junctures. So I, I think that would be that would be one uh, piece of uh, one book to, to look out for. Are you plugging your own book? I am plugging my own book, yeah. That's fantastic. That's great. And also for those who, uh, uh, for Hebrew speakers, uh, just not long ago, I think it was maybe a week or, or 10 days ago, we had a broader panel, a two-hour panel uh, hosted by INSS, uh, a six-member, a six-person uh, panel talking about precisely some of these issues that we've just been talking about, in which I was also one of the participants. Uh, it's in Hebrew, so uh, it, you know that's, that's also one thing to, uh, th- that could be of interest. Okay. That's, uh, I hear, I heard it was a very, very good panel. Uh, so for all those Hebrew speakers as well, we'll, we'll link to that. Kevin, when is your book supposed to come out? Um, I imagine sometime next year. I don't have a, a specific date though. Okay. So we'll, uh, we'll look out for that. Uh, before we sign off, I'd just like to thank, uh, Jacob Gilman who produces this podcast and I'd also like to thank all of you who listen and support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast. You know who you are. Uh, and remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and that makes it easier uh, to get it every week when it comes out. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Kevin, uh, for coming on. Uh, in less than an hour, I think we solved the Iran and China issues. So good job to us. Uh, but again, thank you for coming on. Thanks. Good to be with you again.